invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 this morning is, I want to examine with you um, three men. But we begin with two men in particular. One's name is Peter. The other's name is Judas. And we learn of Peter's denial of Christ and of Judas's betrayal of Christ in Matthew chapter 26, verse 69 through 27, verse 10. This is God's word. Just by way of context, Jesus has been arrested. Jesus has gone before Annas, who was the real power broker. He was the former high priest. Uh, He still held control. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, is at the present time high priest. Uh, This is likely one large compound. Jesus has been hauled before Annas in the middle of the night, brought over to Caiaphas. He's been found guilty of what? Of claiming to be the Messiah. He's been already been beaten by the priests and abused. And this is the setting. It's the middle of the night. This is an illegal trial. There's nothing upstanding about this Peter and John had, when Jesus was arrested, had followed Jesus to this place. So here's the scene. And now we come to verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it. Again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. 
and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Amen. Let's pray. We come, O God, suddenly and abruptly into a portion of the account of the arrest and the sufferings of our Savior, our Lord. And we pray that as we are brought quickly into this dark scene, really two dark scenes, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our guide. And we pray that above all, beyond Peter and beyond Judas, help us to see your Son, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. The Holy Spirit in this section of the Gospel of Matthew puts side by side the last final actions, as it were, during the suffering arrest of Christ, Peter and Judas. Two men, two disciples of Jesus, two disciples who had been with Jesus for three years now, two sins. There may be layers to their sins, but two sins or acts of sin, two different responses on behalf of these men, and two very different outcomes, all recorded by the Holy Spirit, ultimately to help us see and understand one singular Lord, Savior, and King, Jesus Christ. It's the middle of the night. This isn't supposed to happen by biblical law, by even contemporary law of the time among the Jews. No trial was supposed to happen after dark. This isn't even after dinner. This is midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. This is being held on the compound of Annas and Caiaphas. It's, it's likely that Annas, who was like the mob boss, uh, the mafia leader of the religious elite in Jerusalem by this time, It may be that he had a wealthy house. Doubtless it was a nice house. He was the richest man besides Herod or Pilate in Jerusalem. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the high priest at this point. And Jesus is first brought before Annas. And then he's brought for the purposes of it all seeming legitimate before Caiaphas. And this compound is likely maybe one place with a large courtyard in between these two lavish houses, one for Annas and one for Caiaphas. That seems to explain how it is that Peter and John can go to one place and see Jesus and how he's going back and forth between. Whatever the particular locale, this is illegal, this is evil, this is unjust by any stretch of the imagination. And make no mistake, the real reason why Jesus is hated and what they ultimately pin on him is that he claims in verses 63 and 64 
to be none other than the fulfillment of the promises concerning the Messiah. Jesus claims to be, in verse 64, the Son of Man. And he tells Caiaphas that you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Let that settle in this morning. Every single one of us here, young, old, men, women, we have to grapple with the fact that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the King who is coming one day on clouds with power and that he has all authority. You've got to grapple with that. That's who he is. Again, you can't decide what you want Jesus to be like. You can't update Jesus. You can't renovate Jesus. You can't make him more acceptable for this culture in this time in this place. Whether or not you or I like him is absolutely irrelevant. He is who he is. And we must come to terms with who he is. He doesn't have to come to terms with who we are. He claiming, he is claiming to be the promised Messiah, the descendant of David, son of God, son of man. And it is on account of this that the high priest and the other religious thugs want to crucify him and kill him because he's a threat to their turf. He's a threat to their pride. He's a threat to their business, their money, their charade. Jesus threatens to unman them, to unmask them. And he threatens to do that with every one of us here as well. Jesus is not neutral. He, he is kind. There's no one as kind as Jesus. No one as gentle as Jesus. But Jesus is a threat to our pride, to our self-will, our self-determination, so supposed, because he's our king, and every knee will bow, and every knee will confess that he is Lord, either to our eternal joy as those who humbly bow ourselves before him, or to our eternal misery as those who unwillingly bow before him. He is king. He is the Christ. Let's look together first at Peter, Peter's denial. Jesus, earlier in chapter 16, had said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, among the disciples, was the one who answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was the first one to just come out and say it, to declare in bold faith that Jesus was, in fact, the long-awaited, prophesied Messiah. That was an audacious statement, but Peter believed it. He'd seen Jesus up close. He had seen and heard Jesus teach and heal and minister. He had interacted with Jesus personally. He had witnessed this man as a sinless man. He had witnessed his majesty and his humility, his power. And Peter had determined, concluded rather, 
that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the first to confess Jesus as the Christ. Fast forward to the scene in the garden in Gethsemane when Judas brings the mob and the crowd. Peter was the first to actually take out a sword and to try to do something to protect Jesus. I like that about him. Maybe it was unwise and he hadn't been listening to what Jesus had said. But you have to see in Peter an earnestness. As he will deny Christ here in these moments, we have to remember that in front of this mob, along with Roman soldiers, Peter, out of love for Christ, was willing to take out a sword and basically attempt to take out a suicide mission. And he went for the first head he could, missed and hit an ear. But he tried to defend Jesus. And then he, when all the disciples fled, along with John, followed at a distance the soldiers and the mob. They followed Jesus and went to the place where he was taken. And it took courage to go through those gates into that courtyard. John, the disciple of Jesus, was apparently known to the high priest. We know that from the Gospel of John. We Uh, John was apparently somehow known to some of the servants, and so he was able to gain access. Nobody apparently was questioning whether John was a disciple of Jesus. Interesting. We don't even know if John was still on the scene by this point. But Peter, tagged along with John, gained entrance into this courtyard. And you have to give him credit for that. That takes guts. He loves his Lord. He's trying to see what's going to happen to him. He's wanting to follow Christ. And nonetheless, Peter, who Jesus had called the rock, Petra, he was undone in the night by fear. And this wasn't, shouldn't have been a surprise, because Jesus, back to chapter 26, verse 33, turn there if you would. Jesus had told Peter plainly. I'm sorry, Jesus had said in verse 31, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Peter had responded, verse 33, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Peter, at the Last Supper, Instead of humbly acknowledging his own weakness and the likelihood of his betraying Christ, he had insisted vociferously, boldly, with gusto, Lord, I'd never do that. 
Even if I had to die, I would not deny you. From a distance, it's easy for us to criticize Peter. I will chuckle maybe sometimes as I think about Peter. I personally never criticize Peter. Um, if Peter was in a group like the Shepherds Conference, all these thousands of men, he would be the guy, short of Jesus, I'd want to follow. Uh, he's a leader. He's got courage. Uh, God used him in phenomenal ways. I'm very thankful for Peter. I, I love his letters, don't you? Many years later, written with a pastoral heart. You, you read those letters, you think, is, is this the same man that I'm reading about in the Gospels? And yes and no. But I, I can't bring myself to really joke too much or make criticize Peter. Because I, for one, have nothing to stand on to criticize him. Maybe some of you can understand my position. (laughs) The reality is that though many make Peter into kind of a punching bag, Peter's the best of us. He's the best of us. Of the disciples, he's the top. He's the top of the class. He's the captain of the team. He's the general of the army. He's leader among leaders. He's the best of us. He's the cream of the crop. He's the best of the disciples. And one of the lessons we learn of many from this episode is that the best of us is a weak sinner, liable to temptation, fear, and blasphemy. That's the best of us. We're seeing the strength and the faithfulness and the consistency of the best disciple on display. And it's not very impressive. Jesus had tried to help the disciples understand what would happen, but that did not fit their plan. I don't think it, not only did it not fit their plan, in other words, they read the Old Testament and they rightly concluded that God would send the Messiah, the descendant of David, that he would come and he would be king over Israel and that he would triumph over their enemies and their oppressors and that he would usher in a kingdom of righteousness. That was all correct and Their expectations were correct in that way. What they were unwilling to submit to was the prophets teaching likewise that God had to send the Messiah to deal with the sins of his people. That didn't fit into their plan because in order to accept that, you had to accept that you were weak. That takes humility. Like all sinners, like all sinners, Peter was overly impressed 
with his own personal righteousness. He was over-impressed with his own personal standing before God. He, he doubtless understood he was a sinner, that he didn't understand how profoundly he was a sinner. He was overly impressed with his own ability, with his own strength, with his own passion, with his own zeal, and he was under-impressed with his own sin and corruption and the weakness of his own heart. In the dark of night, the veil in front of his heart was torn wide open. In the true nature and condition of his heart and ours was exposed We're no different than Peter. Evangelicalism today is no different than Peter. (laughs) There's probably a book written by some evangelical somewhere, seven steps as to how to not deny Christ under pressure. We just, we, there has to be a fix. There has to be something we can do. There has to be something in us that we can muster. There has to be a plan. There has to be a pill. There has to be a preacher. There has to be a church. There has to be a song. There has to be something, surely, that can handle it. And make no mistake that what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do time and time again in the scriptures, but particularly here, is bring us face to face with our utter helplessness and weakness. Back to the garden when Jesus was praying and he wanted Peter, James, and John to come aside and pray with them. and They were falling asleep. Jesus urged his disciples to pray. Verse 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. They didn't think they were that weak. And so they didn't need to pray. At root of our prayerlessness, and I say our And again, a mark of modern-day evangelicalism is we are not notably a praying people. What's at the root of that? We don't really think we're that desperate. We don't. We're not that helpless. We're not in that position of weakness. We are not so weak, so vulnerable, so liable to temptation and the power of the evil one that we have to pray, humble ourselves, and cry out to God, Oh God, save me. We're like Peter. We like to think that we need a little help from God, but generally we got something to muster. We can do this. And the best of us, the best disciple, closest to Jesus, 
is undone. And I, I don't mean anything I trust the girls here understand. I have three daughters. But Peter, the best of us, the most manly, the courageous of us, is done, undone by two servant girls out of fear. He's weak. He'd shown so much courage. He'd shown so much love. It was even courageous for him to be there. But as he saw how things were going in the exhaustion and the confusion of the moment, he has seen, remember, Peter since he was a boy walking on roads. He has actually seen walking into the road. He has seen crosses. He has seen mutilated bodies of men and women nailed like carcasses, birds eating out their eyes and their flesh. He's seen what happens when you get in trouble with the authorities and you're crucified. It's terrifying. And in the moment in the night, out of fear and preservation of self, he denies three times. Did you notice? He says, I do not know. I do not know. I do not know the man. Can't even bring himself to say the name Jesus. It's ugly. It's really ugly. This is a great sin. This is not a little oops. You've professed loyalty. You've said to Jesus, looking square in his eyes, Lord, I'll, I'll die for you. You've professed him to be the Christ. You believe that he is the Son of Man who will come in clouds of power, who will sit at the majesty on high. And in the moment when a young servant girl says, you're one of them, you're such a coward out of self-preservation, you say, I don't even know him. Not only that, Peter swears, blasphemes. Verse 74, he began to curse and swear. Likely, he's invoking the name of God. He's invoking the name of God Most High may, in something like, may God do to me and so much more if it's true that I even know that man. He's blaspheming God while denying the Son of God who did nothing but love Peter for over three years, served Peter, washed Peter's feet, was patient with Peter, taught Peter, provided for Peter, and Peter betrays him. There is no belittling, minimizing Peter's sin it is, it is of a magnitude that it's really hard to take in. Peter thought he could stand in his own strength. He crumpled under the questioning of a few servant girls. And when the rooster crowed, in Luke chapter 22, verse 16, we learn that somehow Peter was in position where maybe Jesus was being brought across the courtyard. But at that moment, Luke 22, verse 61 tells us, 
the rooster crowed, and at that moment Jesus turned, and with his bloodied, bruised face, his eyes met Peter's. I don't know this. This is, this is conjecture. I don't know this. I think there are two looks of Jesus that perhaps Peter remembers more than any others. This moment, that look, and then in John, it's recorded later, the Gospel of John, after his resurrection, when Jesus was on the beach, Peter jumps out of the boat, swims to the shore, and I think at that moment when, Peter, when Jesus is looking in Peter's eyes and saying to him, not once, not twice, but three times, Peter, do you love me? I don't know, but I would think that those are the two times, the gazes, the eyes of Christ that Peter has emblazoned on his heart and his mind. Jesus looks at Peter, and in that look is, is disappointment, doubtless, Peter is his friend. Our Lord is a man. Remember, he's not a machine. He has been arrested legally. He, he knew this was going to happen. He knew Peter would do what he's going to do. But Peter is still one of his closest disciples. A look of disappointment. A look of knowing. A look of love. But he looked... And in chapter 26, verse 75, we learn Peter went out and wept bitterly. He remembered the word that Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I think it's the gospel of Luke says he threw himself down and wept bitterly. Utterly broken man, humiliated, really impossible to describe the kind of agony in his heart. He, the best disciple of us all, had just denied his Lord and Savior in the most ugly, cowardly, blasphemous manner. Amazing. Let's now look at Judas. Verse, chapter 27, verse 1 tells us, is a transition moment. The chief priests and elders had determined in the middle of the night that Jesus was guilty himself of blasphemy because he claimed to be who he really was, the Son of God, the Messiah. And they know that they don't have the authority to actually carry out the capital punishment that they desire to crucify him. So they bind him, verse 2, bring him early in the morning to Pilate. I'm sure Pilate wasn't too happy with that. Pilate is the Roman governor in that area. He is the most hated person, but he is the visible representation of the emperor. And Rome does control this area. And so Pilate has to give authority, give permission for any criminal to be crucified or receive the death penalty. So they haul him off before Pilate in the early in the morning, and we will return to that scene in the weeks ahead. But then in verse 3, 
When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned with the 30 pieces of silver. He felt remorse. Judas felt remorse. Some, some Bibles, and I have one at home, um, have over the paragraphs, they have headings. I have a Bible at home that says Judas's, Judas repents. No, he doesn't. And I remind you that those headings over your, the verses, those are not inspired. Those are not invaluable, infallible. Those are put in there by Bible editors and producers to try to help you understand and break up the text. But that is a really unhelpful heading. If you have it, you have full permission to put a line right through it. That is, this is not repentance. Remorse, okay. But he was a bloodthirsty man who for three years had been close to Jesus. He had pilfered the money box. He had wanted to use Jesus as a means for advancement and power. He had seen over three years that Jesus was an innocent man. Amazing Verse 4 is one of the most powerful testimonies to the sinlessness of Christ. Judas says, I have betrayed innocent blood. He openly professes Jesus is innocent. He's righteous. He's not done anything. Jesus had just infuriated Judas because Jesus was righteous. Jesus was innocent. Jesus wasn't going to use his power for carnal reasons. And Judas couldn't use Jesus. Judas hated Jesus, resented him. He maybe acknowledged and knew in his heart that he was who he said he was, but doesn't mean that he believed in him. Satan filled him, but Satan had the material to work with. Judas was not a victim. This is a man who knows Jesus. This is a man who has a clear mind. This is a man who knows what he's doing. And the greed and the pride and the avarice, the lust, the hatred of his own heart is such that he cannot stand, tolerate to have this Jesus around anymore. So he sells him for 30 pieces of silver. But then he does that. Maybe he thought that Jesus would maybe display his power and maybe Judas thought that he would be done with 30 pieces, get 30 pieces of silver and Jesus would have his life and nobody would be really harmed. We don't know. That's all conjecture. But the guilt after he betrays Christ becomes so overwhelming. He's in misery. And here's a little foretaste of hell. Hell is conscious, eternal, just judgment. And one of the aspects of doubtless of hell is the ability to feel the nature of your guilt of your sin against God. Judas is beginning to feel it. The initial promise, enticement of sin, the money, that all has collapsed. And now he's left with the beginning of the consequences of his sin. How many of us have known to a lesser degree the promise, the enticement of sin 
and it'll provide this pleasure, or it'll provide this escape, or it'll provide this advancement, or this ability, or this means, and we gave in to the lust, or the enticement, and when the promise, and after it, not, not long after, we were left with nothing but the realization of our guilt and of the consequences. And it, it makes you sick. It's, it's, a, it's a feeling, it's a guilt is, is a, a reality that God did not create men and women to experience. It's, it's like a living death. Judas has that. He realizes this is a remorse over his guilt, the consequences. This is, this is not godly sorrow. Paul describes godly sorrow and worldly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says, godly sorrow produces repent without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world brings about death. This is the sorrow of the world. Many years ago, many years ago, as a young pastor, uh, a couple called me, um, middle-aged couple and children in the home, and called, asked to meet with me, came into my office, and they were both in tears, but he was, he was just distraught. He was just tears streaming down his eyes, just a, a broken, crumpled form of a man sitting before me with his wife in my study, and, and they explained what had gone on, and he had been in an adulterous relationship with a woman, and, and there we were, and it seemed like he was confessing that, and there had been alcohol involved, and he had a secret life of of drinking alcohol to the point that he was a drunkard. He was enslaved to alcohol. And here he was in the office, and he's, and he's just, just a broken man. He's distraught with tears, and, and they're there together. And, and, of course, I want to assure this man that there is forgiveness for sin. There is, praise God, no sin that cannot be forgiven. The gospel is that good, and, and this man had a position of leadership in the church, and, and so I walked through the gospel with him, forgiveness, I talked to him. She was certainly willing to reconcile and love him, and, and so as, as heartbreaking as this was, it just seemed like, okay, this is, this is going in the right direction, and, and he even stood up the next Sunday in front of the membership of the church, and with tears in his eyes, confessed his drunkenness and his adultery and, and asked forgiveness of the church and resigned from a position in leadership. But of course, everyone wanted to lavish grace on him because the gospel is a gospel of grace. And, and then two weeks later, I, I got a call from his wife. And he was apparently still seeing the woman, texting her. So I called him. And I realized, I assumed that he was going to leave her. I mean, the man was tears. I mean, if you've seen this man, just, I mean, he looked in pain. He was just, didn't seem to be an ounce of pride about him when he was in my office. And I asked him, name, do you intend to never see this woman again and to cease your relationship with her? 
Answer, no. So what were all the tears? What was the deal before the church? He was caught. And the tears was the consequences of the disappointment of his parents, the disappointment of his wife, disappointment of his children, disappointment, disappointment, and he had been caught and he was sorrowing and distraught over the consequences. But the fact is he had zero intention of repenting and turning from his sin. That's what Judas was like. Tears of sorrow, worldly sorrow. He didn't love Jesus. This was not a godly repentance. This was a remorse over the consequences and the guilt of his sin. The men, the the high priest said to Judas, verse 4, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And Judas, in anger, in remorse, in despair, just throws the money into the temple. And this this is really ugly. The priests know that this is that they Judas had sold out his master for thirty pieces of silver, treated his master like a slave. They know they had given him a bribe, but in their self righteousness and keeping up of appearances, look how they talk to one another. Well, we we can't. Verse six: It's not lawful to put the money in the temple treasury because it's the price of blood. <laughs> it's amazing the hoops that self-righteous men will go through like that man I described. They'll do anything to keep up their semblance of appearance of self-righteousness. So they bought a field. That field happened to be the field we learn in the other Gospels where Judas, actually in Acts chapter 1, Peter tells us where Actually, the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, a little side note in Peter's words, tells us that Judas went out to hang himself, uh, didn't do so good of a job, the tree branch broke or whatever, and he was up at a great height and fell down on some rocks and pretty ugly and made a mess and his guts spilled out. And But the field was called the field of blood because it was bought with money that had sold out Christ. It was blood money. It's not because of Judas's blood. It's because of Christ's blood. And it was a fulfillment, we learn, of God's prophecy through Jeremiah. But in closing, I want to just think with you for a moment about these two men. Two great sins. Layers to them, but... They are put before us here, side by side. Judas's sin was heinous. It was arguably the the worst sin alongside Adam's in human history. But Peter, it's up there. I mean, it's in the running. This is not... Oh, well, it is vile, it is disgusting, it is cowardly, it is self-serving, it is blasphemous, it is spiteful, however unintentionally. 
our Lord is standing by himself experiencing all this, and he knows that the very man that he should trust the most is the one who's out in the courtyard cursing and swearing, using God's name in vain to say that he doesn't even know Jesus. How do we explain the difference between these two men? Again, do we look for some principles that they should have followed? No. There are various ways which we could consider the difference between these two men. I want to turn to two passages, though, to help you. I want to turn first to the passage that Dave wrote, read this morning, Psalm 55. And the timing of that is just, I don't know if any of you picked up on that. But on the very day that we are reading, I mean, we are preaching on the betrayal of Judas. We are reading the psalm that prophesied the betrayal of Judas. I don't know if you picked up on that. It's not the only one, but Psalm 55 is the main one. 4, verse 12 of Psalm 55, it's not an enemy. This is a prophetic psalm speaking of the Messiah. This is, this is our Lord's prayer. It's not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself, then I could hide myself from him. It is you, a man, my equal, my companion and my familiar friend. That was what Judas was to Jesus and Jesus was to Judas a companion and familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. And then verse 15, the Messiah prays, let death come deceitfully upon them, let them go down alive to shale, for evil is in their dwelling in their midst. Wow. That's a prayer. Down verse 23, but you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Don't you think in the Garden of Gethsemane, Psalm 55 came to Jesus' mouth? Then turn to Luke chapter 22. Verse 31. Luke 22, verse 31. In Luke's account of this same series of events, Jesus says there to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. This is in the upper room. This is before Gethsemane and the betrayal, arrest of Christ. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, Jesus is saying to Peter. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. He said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times. You do not know me. But I want you to notice, Peter, I have prayed for you. We have a prayer in the Psalm 55 of imprecation, an imprecatory psalm. That means 
praying down judgment upon an evil man. And in Luke 22, we have a prayer for the preservation of a man who's not innocent. Turn to one more passage, John 17. Here we have what is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, prayed sometime between the upper room and the Mount of Olives, one of the most cherished chapters, rightly so, in all of Holy Scripture. Jesus is praying to his Father in heaven, and in John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus prayed, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. There are different reasons or observations we could make about the difference between these two men. Two men, two disciples, two egregious sins, two very different outcomes. But at the heart of it is the difference of these two men in relation to Jesus Christ and Jesus' prayers for them. Think about that. What happened to Judas was just, but have you ever considered that what happened to Judas was actually part of the Father fulfilling the answer, answer to the prayers of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? And if that doesn't scare you, I don't know what would. And Peter weeps bitterly But what's the difference? He does love Jesus. He does. The sin, there's no minimizing it. But he has a faith and a love for Jesus that's true. His faith, when he's on his face, weeping, his eyes out. He's weeping because he has faith. He believes Jesus is the Messiah. He's confused, but he loves him. And he's overwhelmed with guilt of love. The difference ultimately between the two men, though, is not to be found within them. But is to be found in that third man, remember I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, three men. The difference between the two men is the different relationship to that one man. And this is very, very basic. This is very simple. But I want to say it as plainly, as directly as I can this morning. There's a likelihood this morning that some of you need to come to grips with what your relationship is to this one man named Jesus Christ. 
because that is the determining factor between your eternal salvation and your eternal judgment. You're that weak. You and I are sinners. We need a Savior. Let me say that again. We need a Savior. And this text and Peter's denial is in part teaching us how much we need. And there are some here this morning, it's just still a faint need. You know, it's kind of there. You kind of have this idea, well, we're all human. We kind of all mess up. No, 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 no. You need and I need to be willing to come to grips with our utter brokenness and weakness and sinfulness and guilt before a holy God. And there is absolutely, listen, nothing, nothing, nothing you can do. It's not in you. It's not in me. You have no strength. You have no ability. If the best of us, Peter, disciple, spent three years with Christ, and if he's the leader of leaders, the captain of captains, the general of the army, and if he collapses in this moment, what chance do any of us have to stand? Listen, you and I need Jesus. And you need to let him know you need him. That's the difference. You go to him. You call upon him. You cry to him. You confess. Oh God. I got nothing. But sin and corruption and guilt. And if you do not save me. I am undone and damned like a Judas hanging himself with his gut spilled out. That's all the glory of my self-will and ability. Oh God, save me. Save me through your son, Jesus Christ. And the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful encouragement of this text is that if you believe in Jesus, as Peter did, and if you have Jesus praying for you as Peter did. You will be saved. And you'll not only be saved, but like Peter, you'll actually be forgiven and equipped to go and to minister to others in the name of Jesus. Peter is, I thank God, aren't you thankful for Peter's story? I don't know if I could stay in ministry without Peter. Because we, we fail Christ, the best of us, and yet Jesus still uses him. And he saves him. And I think, oh, thank you, God, because if you can save Peter and forgive him of that kind of sin, then there's hope for me and there's hope for you. But what's your standing in relation to Jesus? I'm not talking about your families. I'm not talking about your spouse. I'm not talking about your mom or your dad, your siblings. I'm talking about you. Have you let God know that you're a sinner, that you're that weak? And does Jesus know that you need him to be your savior, to be your high priest, to intercede for you? Let him know this morning. Let's pray. Thank you, God, this morning that we can come to the table now and remember your covenant love for us, that though we are faithless, you remain faithful. Be honored now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.